For four and a half years, the conflict in Europe has raged. The Nazi war machine has seized control of most of the continent, and it doesn't seem to be showing any signs of stopping. For Hitler and his ilk, nothing short of world domination will suffice, as country after country falls prey to the Fuhrer's voracious appetite for land and power. It appears as if all hope is lost. But luckily, the United States has a trick up its sleeve, one that the Nazis will never see coming. A crew of highly skilled and specially trained fighter pilots, namely of African-American descent, to level the playing field and break up the regime's empire over the European skies. Known as the Tuskegee Airmen, they were a group of some 922 pilots who comprised the 332nd Expeditionary Operations Group and the 477th Bombardment Group of the United States Army Air Corps, or AAC, the precursor of the United States Air Force. Though their heroism helped turn the tide of the war in Europe, they were met with a great deal of adversity on the home front, due, not surprisingly, to their skin color. Despite this, they rose to the occasion and ended up being not just one of the most highly decorated groups of World War II, but the one that would ultimately desegregate the United States military as a whole. Who were the Tuskegee Airmen? Why was their special group formed in the first place? And how did their actions change the course of the war? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome back to Black History Month on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. African Americans have participated in all of America's major conflicts since the inception. During the Revolutionary War, enslaved as well as free blacks served in both the Patriot and Loyalist causes, not necessarily because they felt that one was in the right while the other was wrong, but in an attempt to decide who would treat them better. The Civil War nearly a century later once again saw them on both sides of the conflict. Yes, some African Americans did, in fact, fight for the Confederacy, though it was more out of desperation on behalf of the South, as they needed any and all able-bodied men to fight. Then, of course, there were the Buffalo Soldiers, a series of five regiments made up of African American troops who were assigned to the western frontier to fight belligerent Native American tribes in the so-named Indian Wars. The 369th Infantry Regiment of New York, more commonly known as the Harlem Hellfighters, bravely fought alongside the French during the Great War, World War I, to keep the Germans at bay. Needless to say, by the outbreak of the Second World War, blacks had more than proven themselves as skilled soldiers, and, while their regiments and battalions had remained segregated from those of their white counterparts, they were faced with a new challenge. Aerial combat was not new to World War II. It had its origins during World War I, when biplanes took to the skies, bringing the fight to the air for the first time. Dogfights between Triple Entente and Central Powers pilots broke out over the battlefields of Europe, and the practice would naturally continue into World War II as well, though on a greater and more intense scale. In the years between the two conflicts, flight technology improved significantly, with the airplane being pushed to the limit in various experiments like those of Charles Lindbergh and Amelia Earhart. As such, an entire generation of Americans were inspired to follow in their footsteps, including many African Americans. The only problem was, there was a widespread belief among those in the military that blacks were incapable of both learning how to fly as well as operate aircraft. By the late 1930s and early 1940s, however, as the outbreak of war in Europe seemed more and more imminent with each passing year, they would soon be given the opportunity to prove this baseless claim wrong. It came in the form of an announcement by President Franklin Roosevelt himself in 1938, at which time he stated that he would be expanding the civilian pilot training program as a precaution against what appeared to be the ever-looming threat of oncoming conflict. No sooner had the Army Air Corps, AAC, begun preparations on the program were prospective African-American candidates barred from participating altogether. Outraged by this, civil rights organizations such as the NAACP, as well as several black publications throughout the country, banded together to assure both the U.S. military and 
and government that African Americans were capable of flying planes and defending their country against any threat. So it was that, in September of 1940, President Roosevelt finally agreed to allow blacks the chance to participate in the program, albeit in a specially selected place chosen by the War Department. The training site was the Tuskegee Army Airfield in Tuskegee, Alabama, then still under construction. The place was chosen specifically due to its proximity to the Tuskegee Institute, an historically black university founded by Booker T. Washington nearly 60 years prior. As such, a sizable portion of the applicants were either graduates or undergraduates of the institute, though they came from all over the country. Along with some 1,000 pilots, the Tuskegee program also trained a whopping 14,000 instructors, mechanics, control tower operators, navigators, bombardier and other staff members. For nearly two years, they trained rigorously, and with the United States' entry into the conflict following the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, they were ready for action. In April of 1942, the first squadron of Tuskegee-trained pilots, the 99th Pursuit Squadron, was deployed to North Africa, where they assisted the Allies in retaking the region from both the Nazis and the Italians. The reclamation of North Africa was critical for the Allies, as it was the gateway to the Middle East's rich oil deposits, which were imperative for, quite literally, fueling the war effort. If the Axis had gained control, the outcome of the entire war may have been different. From the beginning, however, things got off to a bumpy start for the 99th. For starters, they were tasked with flying second-hand P-40 Warhawks, which ran slower than the planes the Nazis were using, and therefore more difficult to maneuver. Despite their underperformance, though it was no fault of theirs, they were sent to Italy to serve alongside the white pilots of the 79th Fighter Group. There, in early 1944, they shot down a record 12 Nazi fighter planes in a single day. Then, in February that same year, they, along with the 100th, 301st, and 302nd Fighter Squadrons, were regrouped into a single African-American unit, known as the 332nd Fighter Group. With significant upgrades, including the switch to faster P-51 Mustangs, they were tasked with escorting heavy bomber planes and raids deep within enemy territory. To identify them, their tails were painted red, giving rise to the regiment's nickname of Red Tails. With better equipment and newer model planes, these black pilots proved once and for all that African Americans could, in fact, learn how to fly and hold their own in aerial combat. In all, the Tuskegee Airmen flew some 15,000 missions in just over two years of combat. They'd shot down 36 Nazi fighter planes in the air and 237 on the ground, along with some 1,000 transport vehicles. On a somber note, however, 66 of these brave men were killed in action, and another 32 were taken prisoner after being shot down. Though their heroism was celebrated by the government upon their return, the airmen returned to civilian life, which, perhaps not surprisingly, was still marred by discrimination. But their valor led to a great milestone, three years after the war ended. In 1948, then-President Harry S. Truman signed Executive Order 9981 into effect, which ended segregation within the U.S. military. At long last, blacks and whites could serve side by side, and some of the former Tuskegee Airmen would go on to have long, prosperous, and lucrative careers in this newly integrated military. Benjamin O. Davis Jr., for example, a graduate of West Point, would go on to become the first African-American general in the newly established United States Air Force. Daniel James Jr., also known as Chappie, would become the first black four-star general in 1975, and George S. Spanky Roberts was the first black commander of an Air Force unit and retired as a colonel. 
but their achievements and accolades didn't end there. In 2007, President George W. Bush awarded some 300 of the original Tuskegee Airmen congressional gold medals. Two years later, they were invited to the inauguration of President Barack Obama, who in his inaugural address proudly stated that, quote, his career in public service was made possible by the path heroes like the Tuskegee Airmen trailblazed, unquote. From being denied the chance to defend their country to rising to the occasion and proving their ability and bravery, the Tuskegee Airmen faced considerable challenges to become some of the biggest heroes of World War II. It's largely thanks to them that we are able to enjoy the freedoms we do today, and it's imperative that we honor them not just for our own sake, but for the sake of posterity as well. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. With only one Thursday left in February, Black History Month on the History Loves Company podcast is winding down, but I do so hope you've been enjoying these special episodes. They've been a great deal of fun to make, and have proven quite educational for me. That being said, if you've enjoyed the content and wish for it to continue, then please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. By doing so, you'll be led to three different monthly support plans which fit any budget. Be sure to listen and share as well, as any and all support truly helps. Tune in next week for the conclusion of the Black History Month series, in which we'll be taking a look at the legendary Rosa Parks and the Montgomery Bus Boycott. Be sure to tune in next Thursday and every Thursday for a brand new episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off for now. See you next time.